This will now be our second week in this section of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have not yet done so, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I say the second week in this section because as we came to realize, Matthew, the author of this Gospel, is writing a very careful account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he does that in such a way that he puts together certain events and those events are, are tied together in the gospel through common phrases, certain words, and even some geographical locations. And it begins with a particular individual here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is one of those amazing characters in the gospel of Matthew and really on the pages of Scripture because he comes onto the scene preaching in chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, this man is calling those who were in his audience to repent because on the horizon is coming this kingdom that they had been looking for. And the section ends over in chapter 4 and verse 17 with the very same words, now being handed off from John the Baptist to the one who he said would come after him, namely the Messiah, when Jesus begins his ministry, preaching exactly the same theme, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This section is held together by these statements. And just by way of review, we said that this is essentially an entire section dedicated to the introduction of the fact that Jesus Christ would come and he would live out the perfect righteousness that every human being needs to have accredited to them if they are to stand before a holy God. He was going to come and he was going to do that. The main argument in this section, as we saw last week, is that Matthew chooses these events in the life of Jesus Christ to reveal his active obedience to the law and his absolute trust in the Father. Now, just by way of review, last week we did look at verses 13 through 17, and there were some very important points that I wanted to make sure we got across in this. You'll notice there in verse 13 that when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, he came with a deliberate intention. His purpose was to be baptized. He didn't just happen to be in the neighborhood. He went out there all that way to be baptized. He had to do it. And John rightfully wanted to prevent him because John the Baptist or John the Baptizer knew that he was not the one who was to be doing the kind of baptism that the Messiah was going to come and do. He would have prevented Jesus from being baptized because he was very much aware that the baptism that he was doing was a baptism designed for Jews to identify that the religious system that they were trusting in or their own righteousness was not sufficient and they needed a Savior. John the baptizer would not allow Jesus to make such a testimony because Jesus needed no Savior. Jesus had no sin. But what you can see here is that Jesus reasons with John and explains to John something that he did not fully understand before. He says to him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
You see, he is saying that by baptizing me, I am fulfilling the promise that one would come and identify with the sinners, that I would come not only to forgive sin, but also to do all the works that they should have done, and one of the things I can do as one of them and for them, as their righteous mediator, is to be baptized with this baptism and fulfill all righteousness. Make no mistake, the baptism that he brings is a baptism that is unique. The baptism that John the Baptist had was a baptism that was fading away, but Jesus understood that in order that he would stand up and make good everywhere where the first Adam had failed, he had to be baptized. He had to identify with those he was coming to save. And so Jesus says that, and then John the Baptist consented. Brothers and sisters, remember, John the Baptist, as we will come to see, is not a man easily persuaded. John the Baptist is not a man of thin conviction. John the Baptist is not the kind of guy who is going to change course just because somebody offers him a suggestion or demands it. John the Baptist clearly understands now who this Christ is. Though from the very beginning we are told that the Spirit was upon him, from the very beginning we are told there were family relations, it is now at this point that he fully understands and therefore consents to baptizing. And then, very clearly, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the waters, and behold, that word is meant to get our attention, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove Uh, This is the anointing, as it were. This is the permanent residency of the Holy Spirit upon the incarnate Son of God that throughout His entire earthly ministry demonstrates Father, Son, Holy Spirit united in their intention to fulfill the eternal covenant and promise to send one who would redeem those who had been chosen for salvation. And behold... The voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He is fulfilling all righteousness. And that's a very important point to remember because it is not that Christ fulfilled all righteousness at that moment and then didn't have to in the future. What we are seeing is the beginning of the fulfilling of the righteousness of the Son of God on behalf of those He came to save. He will always be fulfilling all righteousness. From the time that he is born until the time when he dies, there is a fulfilling of all righteousness. Now, I also would hasten to add that it's very clear once this is done that this righteousness is going to come under a particular test, and that's what you have here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we have another little unit within a larger unit. And what ties this unit together is something that many of us have not probably spent much time talking about. You probably haven't had too many sermons about it, at least not if you've been in our church for any period of time. This is not something that finds its way into Christian literature very often. It is not something that people write Bible studies about, because what we're going to talk about this morning is Satan. By God's kind providence... Even the emphasis in the prayer after the reading of Scripture this morning 
drew our attention to the reality of this figure. And without any prior preparation, that is actually exactly where I decided to go this morning with it, I believe, led by the Lord to do so, because the more I began to study this passage and the more I began to look down at my notes that I was taking and and what themes were coming up, almost every single section ended with this humbling realization that I had not given as much careful attention to the person and work of Satan as perhaps I should, and maybe that's even something that would fit perfectly well with his designs. In fact, the less known our enemy is, perhaps the more content he is to think that he could somehow work his way into our lives and into our church. And so, this morning, I will confess to you that we're not going to be able to get through the entire section the way that maybe I'd originally been intending, because I think this character needs our attention. If you have never heard a sermon on Satan before, this may be your first. If you are visiting with us and you are thinking, my goodness, I've chosen an unusual Sunday to visit. Normally, I don't hear sermons on Satan or the devil. Uh, I'm not really sure that if I were to call up a publisher and say, I've got a book idea, it's called Satan, a biography, that I would get a lot of uh, attention or interest. Um, But at the same time, he is real. And perhaps by his own design, in our world, in our culture, he has become so utterly relegated to the world of fantasy and imagination that we have successfully fallen for a ploy that so makes him into a harmless character, something that a child would dress up for as Halloween, that we have forgotten just how real and powerful and dangerous and destructive and hateful he is. And so today, what I would like to do is bring us to a point where we can understand this character as he comes on the stage. Here, for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, for the first time in the New Testament order of books, for the first time maybe for some of us in a long time, as we actually consider them. Of course, we're not going to be able to stop there. We're going to have to, at sermons in the very near future, also address the other characters that are here. Of course, Jesus we'll talk about all throughout this Gospel, but we also must understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who is the other key character that shows up in this particular verse in the first part of Matthew chapter 4. So please notice, if you would, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, begins like this. Then Jesus, and I believe this was immediately after the baptism, then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The rest of this section is a dialogue, an increasingly potent exchange between the devil and Jesus Christ. In fact, what you will notice is that this is set up for us almost like a duel, like a battle. And that alone is something we have to try to understand because on the one hand, this was not a fair fight. On the one hand, this is Satan, an angel, a created being, setting himself up against the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, the one who is all righteousness, the one who is omnipotent, the one who had no beginning against one who had a beginning, the one who is everywhere versus the one who is in one place at one time, the one who has all knowledge versus the one who has limited knowledge, the one who has all power against the one who has limited power. In one sense, this is in no way a fair fight. 
And yet because we believe that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took on very truly a human body, human nature, a human nature like ours, susceptible to sickness, susceptible to pain and fatigue and hunger and even temptation and even death, that in that very real sense, the temptation was felt and known so that later it could be said of him that he has been tempted in all points as we are, yet without what? Sin. So I confess to you that Every Sunday morning I stand up here with a sense of trepidation. Every Sunday morning I stand up here very much aware of my weaknesses and my frailties and my inabilities to clearly communicate things of this immense nature. But particularly today, I don't stand up here with any confidence other than in what the Scriptures are going to say because I know this is a subject that is far beyond any of our abilities to fully grasp and comprehend. This is something that is going to allow us to go to the very edge and look down into the abyss of something that is going to be utterly incomprehensible. It was just over a year ago that I was traveling with my son and we were visiting New York City and we went up to the top of one of the newer skyscrapers and they have this amazing opportunity to stand at the very edge outside and to look at the view of Manhattan from one of the highest skyscrapers in the world. And because that isn't fear-inducing enough, they've decided that the walls are going to be made of glass instead of anything else that would appear to be strong enough to withhold you. And then, to make matters even worse, they tilt that glass on an angle, so not only are you able to step up to the very edge of the skyscraper, not only are you able to look through clear glass as if you were on the very edge, but they have tilted it forward so you can actually lean out over the edge. There were people, and I'm not making this up, who were crumpled on the floor and had to be assisted out. Because what they thought was going to be a wonderful picture, a selfie that they could provide for their friends and viewers on Instagram became something so overwhelmingly terrifying it almost shut them down. I don't mean to trivialize this with a silly illustration like that, but brothers and sisters, what you're going to see today is it's looking over the edge. It's being dangled over the edge into something that is very real and should on one level be a terrifying thought for us, but immediately linked to that should be the great comfort that this one that we're going to consider is the one who is under the feet of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So with that, we need to consider who is Satan? Who is the devil? It's important that we see that this section begins with an introduction to the one who is going to do the tempting the devil, and it ends in verse 11 with that devil leaving. The devil comes on the scene. The devil and the son have interaction. The son is able to say to the devil, to Satan, be gone, and Satan leaves. I was reading an article this week in which the author made reference to a section in Jonathan Edwards' writings. Jonathan Edwards was a colonial theologian. He was arguably one of the most massive intellects that we've ever had in the Christian church, and he was a pastor. 
And he wrote many books, but he also kept a notebook all the time, and, and it was called miscellanies. It was miscellaneous thoughts that he had before they had been put into, say, book form. And in one of these miscellanies, one of these books, he says this regarding a thought on why it is that God would allow Satan to exist. Why did he allow this character to come on the scene ever? And he says this, and I'm now, I'm now quoting Edwards, God in his providence was pleased to show the emptiness and vanity of the creature. He's speaking about Satan. The emptiness and vanity of the creature. By allowing the insufficiency of the highest and most glorious of all creatures. Just pause for a moment. If he's correct, he is identifying Satan as the highest and most glorious of all creatures. Creatures are created. There are three types of beings. There is a being that has no beginning and no end, and that is God. Uh, There are beings or creatures that have a beginning and an end. That would be animals. They come into existence and they go out of existence. And then there are beings or creatures that have a beginning and have no end. That would be only human beings and angels. Among those who were created... He is arguing that this is the highest and most glorious of all of the created beings. I'm back to Edwards again. He says, furthermore, the head and crown of the whole creation. That God allows the most glorious of creation, the head and crown of all creation, to appear in the following way and to reveal the following truth that by his sudden fall from his glorious height to the lowest depths of hatefulness, deformity, and misery, he might show the collapse of the very greatest and most powerful and most glorious, the literal most dangerous created being in all of the universe, and he would show that that one, was able to fall, that that one was able to go from the very, very height to the very, very lowest point. Why is that important for us to understand? It's important for us to understand because we must come to grips with the reality of the power of Satan and with the reality of the defeat of Satan. Somehow, in our little minds, we have to hold both of these in tension. And if there is one thing we are tempted to do, it is to err on the side of thinking too little of him or too much. Too little of him in that we allow ourselves to play with the temptations he dangles in front of us, convincing ourselves that are of little or no significance, or too much of him thinking that when he has successfully lured us into sinning, that now when he heaps upon us condemnation and warnings that we will not be forgiven, that we begin to heed his counsel and believe him. One of the ways that we are served by our confession of faith is to see the way that it so clearly and carefully talks about Satan. Now, we don't have time this morning to do all of these. I wish we could because it is beautiful the way that it's structured. But in our confession of faith, there are at least five sections that are spoken, that address specifically Satan. And I'm just going to choose one of them for 
your benefit this morning as we talk about the reason for why he may exist in the first place. It says in the Confession of Faith, the fifth chapter, the sixth subpoint, so 5.6, I'm quoting now. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God has a righteous, as a righteous judge blinds and hardens for former sin, from them he not only withholds his grace, by which they might have been enlightened in their understanding and affected in their hearts, but sometimes he also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to certain objects which their corrupt state will make the occasion to sin. God gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that eventually they harden themselves under the same influences which God uses for the softening of others. What's saying is that Satan's freedom to harden and to drag down into sin those whom God has not seen fit to grant this grace to repent and see their sin and be regenerated and have faith. It is Satan who is at work in tempting, hardening, and then dragging down with him into eternal punishment. Satan is not to be trifled with. Satan is not to be viewed as some small player on the stage of redemptive history. This morning, I want to give you three main thoughts to categorize our talk about Satan. Number one, we're going to look at his nature. Number two, his name. And number three, his objective. Number one, his nature. Number two, his name. And number three, his objective. We are going to be looking at a lot of Scripture this morning, and so my encouragement to you would be to just jot these down if you want to go back for further study. I suspect we're not going to have time to have you turn to each one. Number one, let's look at his nature. Satan is real. In our modern day and age, maybe it seems silly for us to say that. Maybe some people sitting here today think it's absurd that in the 21st century, in America, in the Western world, that you would actually suggest that Satan and the devil's real. But he is. Satan is a real being. And we have to be careful about our language on this because some people say he's a real person. And what that does is it gives you the idea that he is somehow embodied. You picture Satan usually as a hymn, and the hymn has a body. But in this case, what we need to realize is that Satan is created as the other angels were created. And as a result, he is a being. He is a being that can take on form, but he is a being that is a spiritual being. This particular being, though, is a being that has a character, a nature. Listen as I read John 8, 44. Jesus, in confronting those who are set against him, says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Satan is real, and Satan has a character, and his character has desires. His character can murder. His character rejects truth. His character is something developed and reveals what is inside of him, and he is by very nature a liar. If you were to define his character, it is that of a liar and a deceiver. He is often referred to that throughout the Bible, the liar, the deceiver, the one who comes masked as an angel of light, but he is really an angel of darkness. The one who sets one thing before you and makes it seem so close to the truth that you would believe it. He is the one who will influence the one later come to be known as Antichrist. And I know for many of us growing up, we thought Antichrist meant opposite Christ. So the worst possible person you can imagine. Well, actually, if I understand him correctly, he is the worst possible person you can imagine because he is the closest to imitating the most perfect person you can imagine. Antichrist comes to be a pretend Christ, would have you believe he is the Christ. Antichrist, by the power of Satan, comes on the scene to try to make you think he is Christ. So here, the power of Satan is demonstrated in his nature as a liar. Well, what exactly do we know about Satan and his beginnings. We know for a fact that he was a created being, that he was an angel, that he was an angel of almost unparalleled glory. If Jonathan Edwards is correct, and there's reason to believe he is, I can't say absolutely for certain, but in terms of the created beings, it would appear as though he was the most glorious. If you were to rank all created beings, he would be on the top not only because of descriptions that are in Scripture, but also because, imagine for a moment, what sort of being and what sort of power would be represented in one who was able, according to the very clear teaching of Scripture, to literally lead away one-third of the angelic hosts. There are only a certain number of angels. There are not an infinite number of angels. I know that because one-third of them fell. (laughs) One-third of infinite would be infinite. One-third of the created angels fell. Can we just allow ourselves to lean over the edge for a moment? This being that we have in mind here, that we're talking about today, was so glorious that, I'm going to say His glory, that His glory was so glorious, was so unfathomable, and His deception And his power of deception was so great that he was able, it says, to lead away one-third of the angels that were created by the holy God and put to worship and serve him. The greatest cosmic mutiny, the greatest disloyalty, the greatest tragedy and conspiracy ever was that Satan, the devil, also called Lucifer, was able somehow to convince a third of the heavenly angels to turn on God and put their loyalty on Satan. Allow that just to sink in for a moment when you consider your adversary. 
with all due respect, you are not an angel. You are not created with angelic powers, angelic wisdom, angelic holiness. You're not created in such a way that you might sustain yourself in the very presence of a holy God. And if that sort of being could fall, how much more susceptible are you and I? This being could only cause them to fall because he himself fell. You may turn here if you'd like or just listen. We have some Old Testament prophetic language that while it has a near context, clearly refers to something way beyond what's just in the context of the book. The first place is Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet is bringing his condemnation upon Babylon, upon one of the arch enemies of Israel. And he says very clear judgments against Babylon. But then, in the midst of his condemnation, something changes. Something shifts. He says, in verse 11, Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed underneath you, and worms are your covers. And then in verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven. Did Babylon fall from heaven? No. No. There's something more here. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It could very well be that the king of Babylon said things of this sort and thought himself to be a king of kings and a lord of lords. But it's widely understood that this is also a very clear statement about the fall of Satan himself and the way that he attempted, because of his own pride, to assemble an army and take over the very throne of God. There's another place that we're going to go. Ezekiel chapter 28. This is another example. Ezekiel 28. This now is a prophecy by Ezekiel against the prince of Tyre. And if Isaiah wasn't clear enough, I think this one is even more clear. Beginning in verse 1, I'm just going to read, The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit on the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you, 
By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. You see, this is what's going on. This king of Tyre, just to the north of where Jerusalem was on the coastline, they had become very wealthy. He was very proud. He says, I'm like a god. But look at verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They are going to come against you and they are going to destroy you. They are going to bring you down. Verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Do you sense the shift? All that stuff said about the king of Tyre is true. And now the lament turns and the king of Tyre is seen. But behind the king of Tyre, there's another king. Behind the king of Tyre, there's another power. Behind the king of Tyre and frankly, every king and ruler who sets himself up, there is another power. And that power is now revealed. Behind him is the one who was at one time the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden. Was the king of Tyre in Eden? No. Was Satan in Eden? Yes. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. On the day you were created. When God fashioned and created this angelic being, metaphorically covered in jewels and gold, metaphorically the most dazzling and beautiful being of splendor, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Was the king of Tyre an anointed guardian cherub? Cherub's an angel. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways before the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Brothers and sisters, the king of Tyre was not blameless in his ways from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. No, this is referring to Satan, the devil. It is him because of his power and status and glory. This guardian cherub again, verse 16. That verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. And by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Satan, or the devil, the guardian cherub, the one who occupied what is here called the mountain of God, the one whose heart became proud because of beauty, whose wisdom became corrupt because of a desire for more splendor, 
received as a result of his violence against a holy God, the just condemnation he deserved. And as he was hurled down, as it were, to earth, he began his roaming. That is his nature. Secondly, I want you to see his name. I've made reference to a few already today. For example, the word Satan is used to describe him 36 times. The word Satan just means adversary. It is a name for him, but it is also used for others. So the word Satan is not exclusively for him. It just means an adversary, a Satan. Secondly, he is called the devil 38 times. But again, the word devil is a word that means slanderous or someone who accuses falsely. The word devil is actually used, believe it or not, in 1 Timothy 3.11 as a warning that deacons cannot be slanderous. It's the word devil. We can't have any devil deacons, okay? All right, deacons. We can't have any devils anywhere. But this is what he's saying. Slander, false accusation, it's the same word for devil. But what I'm going to look at here just for the sake of time is three in particular. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. You can turn over there if you're still in the Gospel of Matthew. We will take a look at this because we'll get here eventually. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, in his confrontation with the false leaders, the religious leaders, has one particularly fiery exchange with them when they say that his power was actually from Satan and thus commit the crime of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, verse 22, for context. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he, was, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Jesus goes on to confront them for this statement. Verse 26, he says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Holy Spirit of God that I cast out the demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is saying to these Pharisees, you are telling me that my power comes from the devil. When my power comes from the Holy Spirit, you are calling the Holy Spirit of God the devil. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But you'll notice that everybody here agrees that Beelzebul is the one who rules over the demons. There's another name for him if you look over in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 is very clear on this, on his name. Chapter 9 of Revelation is just one chapter where we begin to see the end of this great adversary. He will be once and for all destroyed as we will see in a few moments. But for now, take a look at this because it's very clear. Talking about demonic forces in the world. My concern today is not so much with what is going on in the context of chapter 9. My concern is a very clear statement made about who rules the demons. Verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Satan's an angel. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, 
forgive me Hebrew scholars if I mispronounce that, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. These are his names. He is a being, but he is a being with a character. He is a being with a name. He is described as the devil, described as Satan, described as the father of lies, described as an angel of light who is really darkness, but his name here, Beelzebul, Apollyon, the one who is the king of the demons. His nature, he's a liar. He's a hater of God. His name, he is the king of the demons. And then let's look finally at his objective. If you were to take the scriptures and you were to go through and study every time he appears, you would find yourself overwhelmed with biblical data, much like I was this week. So I'm not going to be able to cover everything. My intention is not to cover everything. But I'm going to show you here in the next few moments with, object, with his objective, the beginning and the end and the present reality. The beginning, the end, and the present reality. Here's the beginning. I go back to Isaiah 14, 12. It says, remember how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. There was a beginning to his work on the earth. There was a beginning to his being expelled from the heavenly courts. And I believe that the beginning is seen in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Where does Satan first appear? Genesis 3. I mean, you are just getting started in your Bible reading for the year, and on day two, <laughs> there's Satan. If you were to read your Bible chronologically, as some of you do, you would probably start with the oldest book in the Bible, which most of us believe is Job. And if you go over to the book of Job, the ink isn't even dry before Satan shows up. Satan is this being on this earth among God's creation, defiling it and dragging it down to the ultimate place where he will be in the lake of fire. These are his beginnings. What about his end? Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. From time to time I say things, and as I'm saying them, um, there's a flag that's thrown on the play. Some of you will, apparently there's a game this afternoon of some consequence. And I said earlier, he will be destroyed. And in my mind, it was a flag went up. Flag on the play. So let me, let me back it up. Let me just clarify something. When I say he'll be destroyed, I don't mean that he will be annihilated. I don't mean he will be brought to non-existence. By destroyed, what I mean is the devil will forever and ever be punished in the lake of fire. The devil will forever and ever be punished in the lake of fire. Remember we said at the beginning, there are beings that have a beginning and have no end. Demons, angels, humans... It's that category. I would hasten to say, by the way, that that would be the case for all such beings. Every heavenly angel, 
secured in their righteousness forever. Every fallen angel secured in their damnation forever. Every regenerated person secured by the righteousness of Christ and their payment paid forever. And every unregenerate human being suffering the consequences and the wrath of God for their sin forever in that same lake of fire. There is only one of two ultimate destinies. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. But beyond the beginning and the end, let's also consider the present reality. I mentioned earlier Job. In Job chapter 1 and verse 6, we see this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Now, this is again in the cosmic courtroom of God. I don't understand this. If you come to me and ask, can you be specific on what's going on here? I will say to you, no. I am not, I I can't explain this. I'm I'm given a window just like you are. I think sometimes people understand me to have a Bible that's got extra verses, you know? Like, I don't understand this. Neither do I. But this is what it says. And I don't believe that, that these angels, that these demons were just merely cruising into the courtroom of God to give an update. They are summoned. They are called in. God is the God of the universe. He controls everything. He is sovereign. They, they come to Him because He demands that they present themselves before Him. Show up, line up, explain yourself. One of them who came was Satan. And remember, if you've read the book of, jo- of Job, it was God's idea. He says, have you considered Job? Satan gives an excuse for Job's loyalty to God, and God says, go test him. Go test him. Matthew 4, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. He says to Satan, go test him. He is a present reality. He is roaming on the earth, he explains. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, again, regarding this present reality, it says this, we as fallen human beings, each and every one of us, before we knew the saving grace of Christ, it says in Ephesians 2, 2, that we were walking in sin. It says that in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, do you realize that Satan is at work presently as we sit here in the sons of disobedience. That means unbelievers. I think you can trace this back to the garden when it says that there will be a seed that comes from the serpent and a seed that comes from the woman. This offspring of Satan, the the sons of disobedience. Jesus says, remember in John 8, you're a son of the devil. The devil has sons too. And these are sons of disobedience. And so we must remember on one level that The world is not merely a world unsaved. The world is a world hijacked and controlled by Satan. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is his system. The flesh is his means. The devil is his king. It is at work now in the sons of disobedience. As such were some of you until you were saved. What does he want to do to us? Forgive the complexity of this outline, but I'm just going to once again give you three little subpoints under this because I want you to understand it clearly. Among this present reality, I see three things going on. Probably more, but these three are at least right here in Scripture that I can find. Number one, he wants to devour you. 
Number two, he wants to devour the gospel. And number three, he wants to fill the church. You heard that correctly. Number one, he wants to devour you. Number two, he wants to devour the gospel. And number three, he wants to fill the church. When I say he wants to devour you, I'm not entirely sure I can say with conviction that he hates you because hatred is sometimes the opposite of love. It's a passion. I've heard it said somewhere that the opposite of love is indifference. And I'm more comfortable saying not so much that he hates you, he hates Christ. But I believe he's indifferent to you and me. He's indifferent to humanity. Humanity will simply be the collateral damage that joins him in the lake of fire to the wrath of God forever. Bringing humanity down is collateral damage in his effort to do everything he can to defy the king, the real king. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. This is written, I believe, to Christians, just to be clear. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Is it possible for Satan to devour a Christian? If the answer is yes, then we have to do some thinking here. We have to really think. What does he mean? Let's be clear, the devil is not able to devour you eternally, spiritually. But the devil is able to do horrendous damage to you and your testimony and your witness. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, I go, to there, for, go there for one example. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 27, we read this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I believe, by the way, that's a metaphor. It means don't linger. Don't, don't let something stew and fester. And notice why. Because if you do, or if you don't deal with it, you give an opportunity to the devil. Can the devil devour you in a sense? Yes, because you give him an opportunity to by being angry but sinning and by not dealing with things quickly and and allowing them to fester. There's something else he can do. In Matthew chapter 16, you don't need to turn there, but this is the famous statement where Peter has probably the most um, interesting day of his life. I mean, he starts off by being commended by Jesus for identifying him as the Son of God, and then just a couple of verses later, he takes Jesus aside with all of his newfound wisdom and prowess and begins to rebuke him, and Jesus responds by saying, get thee behind me, Satan. How would you like to be called Satan by Jesus? It's a, you have a bad, bad day. Well, was he really calling him Satan? No, he, he, he wasn't identifying Peter as Satan. He was saying that Satan had so controlled his thinking, so devoured his wisdom, devoured his reasoning, that what came out of his mouth was as if Satan was saying it. Get behind me with that satanic speech. He wants to devour you. Secondly, he wants to devour the gospel. In Matthew 13 and verse 19, there is an explanation by Jesus of the parable of the soils, remember? 
And in that explanation, we have this in the Gospels more than just Matthew, but he says there in verse 19 of chapter 13, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The devil seeks to devour the gospel. The devil eats the seed of the gospel. He eats it. It falls on the ground, and the ground is at work here. The seed wasn't bad. The ground was hard. And the imagery of the birds coming and eating it, Jesus says, that's what Satan does. Satan, Satan devours and eats up the gospel. He doesn't want it to settle into the heart of somebody. The minute you witness to somebody, the minute you evangelize somebody, I, I, I would venture to say that that is that moment, at that point, where suddenly they experience that demonic force, that, that evil that is in the world trying to strip away the gospel you just gave them. Why is it so difficult to lead somebody to Christ sometimes? Why do you have to explain the gospel over and over and over and over again? Because in some cosmic sense, that, that truth as it goes out, as the devil is granted by God's sovereign permission for reasons I cannot fully understand, permission to snatch that away, it is constantly being re-sown. Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged in evangelism. Evangelism is not just sowing. Evangelism is sowing and sowing again and sowing again and sowing again. I think it was Luther who said that the devil is real, but he's God's devil. What does that mean? What it means is that God, God has sovereign control. Yes, the devil is there, but he is on a leash When he is sent to test Job, he says, you can go thus far and no farther. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour the gospel. And I'm going to argue that he wants to fill the church. And what do I mean by that? Matthew chapter 13, verse 39. Jesus gives another sort of agrarian illustration. And remember, it's the story of the wheat and the tares. And the man comes out, and his servants are saying, the wheat you sowed, what is wrong with the seed? What is wrong with the seed that you had? You got some bad seed, boss. And this boss says, no, I didn't get bad seed. It's like the gospel. It's not bad seed. What you're seeing, these tares, that stuff, it's my enemy. My enemy came in and sowed the tares. The enemy is Satan. Verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, There is tares in the church because the devil is sowing tares into the church. And you might say, well then, pastor, what's the plan for tear removal? Can I sign up for the tear removal ministry? I mean, security would be great and all, but I'd rather be among the business of tear removal. I'll go grab them, I'll bring them up, and we'll bundle them together, and we'll we'll kick them out once a month. I'm being facetious. That would be the opposite of what Christ appears to teach here. Notice what he says. The harvest is at the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. He is saying, you don't go in there and try to uproot tares because you might uproot the wheat while you're at it. You might convince a Christian they're not really saved in your effort to try to prove what is tear and what is wheat. God is aware. God knows. God's doing something with it, and God will deal with it in the end. But if you're wondering why it's there, it's not there because the gospel's bad. It's not there because the sower is bad. It's there because the enemy has sown something that is an imposter inside. His nature, he is real. His name, 
He is the king of the demons. His objective is clear from the beginning all the way to the end. There is a present reality, and he is at work, and he wants to devour you. He wants to devour the gospel, and he wants to fill the church with those who claim to be Christians but are not. It is that devil that is going to be able, in the weakened state of the incarnate Son of God, to hurl at him the most devious and sophisticated temptations. And what I'm going to propose to you in the coming weeks is something you might not be expecting, and that is this. I want to say it very carefully. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, is not primarily a text that you're supposed to go to to get instructions on how to fight temptation. It's not primarily that. Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11 is put there by Matthew primarily to show you and I how the perfect Son of God responded to temptation, to prove that He could fulfill all righteousness. It is there primarily to show you and I how the sinless Son of God fulfilled all righteousness by resisting all temptation. That's why it's there. And we will glean from that certain principles and truths that will be so encouraging to us. But the most encouraging thing to us shouldn't be, well, if I use the right Scripture, Satan won't bother me so bad. It should be that no matter what I do, when I sin, and even when I choose to sin, somebody has already stood up under that sin and succeeded where I fail. And so despite the crushing blow that this is to me and the, the pain of it, I know somebody has already done it perfectly, and it's him that I look to for my righteousness. One concluding thought today. What about when we fail? What about when Satan devours us, gets the upper hand, gets a foothold? I don't mean when you sin accidentally. I mean when you sin even deliberately, even intentionally. It's like the saying some people have, you know, forgive me, Father, for I know exactly what I'm about to do. Do we sin sometimes thinking that grace may abound? Well, the Puritan writer Richard Sibbs wrote something that I read this week, and I was, again, just amazed by the beauty of it and the clarity of it. He says that when you sin and when you feel the righteous discipline of your loving Father, that in that moment as you feel that, remember that you are merely tasting from the cup that Christ drank down to the dregs on your behalf, draining, as it were, the wrath of God for all of those who would believe in him. So with that as sort of a context, his early English language just might be a little hard to follow, so... That's the background. That's what he's saying. Now let me quote him because he says it so much more beautifully than I do. He said, God's, God sees fit that we should taste of that cup of which his son drank so deeply that we might feel a little what sin is and what his son's love was. But our comfort is that Christ drank the dregs of the cup for us and will secure us, come under us, 
so that our spirits may not utterly fail under that little taste of his displeasure which we may feel. He became not only a man, but a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. Whatever may we may be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. And he gives us four applications. He was given authority from the Father. All power was given to him. Number two, he is strength in himself. His name is the mighty God. Number three, he is all wisdom, and that from his own experience, and he knows how to help us because he's been through it like us. And fourthly, his willingness as being bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. He came as one of us to die for us so that we could have life in him. That is the hope of the gospel today. And that is the comfort that comes from understanding that though this adversary of ours is real and powerful beyond our comprehension, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And as our confession began, and now we'll end with this, and thank you for your attention today. I am aware of the time. I'm aware of it. I'm ignoring it, but I'm aware of it. It's, it's, it's right there. This works. But I just really want to thank you for allowing me to take this time. Let me just end with this. The liberty, chapter 21, section 1 of our confession, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel lies in their freedom from guilt of sin and the condemning wrath of God, from the rigors and curse of the law, and in their deliverance from his, this present evil world, from bondage to Satan, from dominion of sin, from the harm of afflictions, from the fear and sting of death, from the victory of the grave, and from everlasting damnation. This liberty is also seen in their free access to God and their ability to yield obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but with childlike love and willing minds. All these freedoms were also experienced in substance by true believers under the Old Testament law. But for New Testament Christians, this liberty is further enlarged, for they have freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. They also have greater boldness and access to the throne of grace and fuller communications with the free Spirit of God than believers under the law normally experienced. This great and glorious freedom in Christ is availed to us in His invitation to present ourselves before Him, not to give an explanation of our behavior, but to ask for grace in time of need and to plead the righteousness of Christ that was given to us at our salvation. Brothers and sisters, may it comfort you today and may it hold you up in the days in the future inevitably when you will be tempted to fall. And in the times when you do, may you fall knowing that you're landing in the everlasting arms of your Savior. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this truth today and though we were not successful in getting to the 
main narrative of this text, this character who comes on the scene, this devil who when we do hear about him is often so trivialized or in some places perhaps made to be so terrifying. May we remember that he is real and he does roam the earth. But whatever access he has to us is not unknown to you. It is not ultimately for your glory. And in the end, he can no, do no damage to our eternal souls. And you will, in your time and in your way, bring him to that place where he and all the other angels that have followed him and all of those who have rejected the Son and remain sons of their father the devil will experience the righteous wrath of a holy God forever. We take comfort in your justice. But Lord, today we also take comfort in your grace, knowing that we deserve that end as much as anybody else. But by your grace, you have awakened us, given us new life and faith to believe, to repent, to receive from you total forgiveness and the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior. For that we give you thanks, and it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.